Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex podcast with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of May 7th, 2022, as ever from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And uh, we're going to be discussing Somalia this evening. Taking a break from our recent focus on Ukraine, although, as we shall see, it all ties together. And this is at the suggestion of one of our Patreon supporters, longtime activist Adam Weissman, who is taking us up on our offer, our special offer that if you become a $2 per weekly podcast supporter, of the Counter Vortex on Patreon, you get to choose something for me to discuss on the podcast. Making note of the ongoing U.S. drone strikes in Somalia, Adam correctly made the observation that there is very little awareness in the outside world as to what the ongoing conflict there is actually all about. So we're going to endeavor to shed a little bit of light on the Counter Vortex podcast this evening. The most recent drone strike against the so-called Shabab militants in Somalia was on February 25th, following a Shabab insurgent attack on Somali government forces outside the capital Mogadishu. Reports have been very sketchy on the number of casualties. But generally, over the past many years of U.S. drone strikes in Somalia, human rights groups have accused the United States of acknowledging only a fraction of the civilian casualties from these strikes. Amnesty International has accused Washington of portraying civilian deaths from these raids as successful hits on militants and refusing to offer compensation to the survivors. So. It's the usual counterproductive imperial hubris, which only loans the cachet of anti-imperial resistance to the Shabab, who really are a very, very bad bunch, but more about them later. Another even more grim reason that Somalia has been percolating into the news a little bit recently is the ongoing drought very clearly linked to global climate change, already struggling after three seasons of failed rains. Farmers and pastoralists throughout the Horn of Africa are facing an unprecedented fourth drought, with Somalia hit the hardest. A catastrophe that the United Nations is warning could tip more than 20 million people into extreme hunger or possibly starvation this year. Rains were supposed to begin falling across the region in March or April, but it has been the driest start to the season in 40 years. 600,000 people have already been displaced by drought, and scientists are warning that thanks to climate change, we're almost certainly going to be looking at more of this kind of thing in the future, a lot more, and that ultimately the entire region of the Horn of Africa and much of the Sahel and greater Middle East and North Africa could become uninhabitable. Their word, not mine. 
extremely frightening. So whatever problems Somalia is dealing with now are only poised to get much worse as people on the ground are forced to fight over the disappearing last remnants of water and arable land. But I uh, want to emphasize that that absolutely does not mean that we get to throw up our hands and say it's all hopeless. On the contrary, it is all the more reason for us as progressives in the West, in the countries which are driving the climate crisis, including all too literally in our gas-guzzling SUVs driving the climate crisis, all the more reason for us to be engaged and hopefully in a helpful and enlightened way. Nor, I should also emphasize, does the climate crisis let any of the human rights abusers or armed actors on the ground off the hook because they remain responsible for their actions, no matter how harsh the material conditions they are facing? Two important points to keep in mind when we recognize the context of the climate crisis. Now, there's a real paradox that so-called government-controlled Somalia, that is to say the area where the government based in Mogadishu, the capital, at least ostensibly has control, is in total chaos. And in fact, that government doesn't actually have very much control outside Mogadishu and only has tenuous control even there. And the rest of so-called government-controlled Somalia, which basically constitutes the southern third of the country, is really under the control of um, various armed actors, the Shabab insurgents, local clan militias, and foreign powers that have carved out occupation zones. Whereas the other two-thirds of the country where de facto governments with no international recognition are in control, well, there, those governments actually are in control, and things are comparatively stable and secular, and even moving in a progressive direction. So <laughs> that really says everything, that, you know, the, the areas of Somalia which are under the control of the internationally recognized government are really not under the control of the internationally recognized government, and it's a totally chaotic situation with multiple armed actors and terrible rights abuses, whereas the areas of the country which are under the control of governments which are not recognized by the international community are, again, comparatively stable and secular. And there's all too little awareness of this in the outside world. Okay, a little bit of history is in order here. Somalia was basically ruled by a patchwork of local sultanates until the European colonial powers started arriving in the 1880s and established primarily British Somaliland and Italian Somaliland. British Somaliland being on the north coast along the Gulf of Aden and Italian Somaliland basically constituting that southern third of the country along the Indian Ocean coast, bordering Kenya in the south. Now, initially, these were protectorates 
established in treaties with local sultanates. But um, in 1936, in the fascist era, Italy, concomitant with its um, invasion of Ethiopia, abolished any remnants of autonomy for Italian Somaliland and turned it into what was called a governor eight, essentially an outright colony. There was also a French Somaliland, which would become the country of Djibouti upon independence, and a large area with an ethnically Somali population also wound up in what was then called Abyssinia, today Ethiopia. The Ogaden region, today Ethiopia's Somali state, which was contested throughout this period between the Italians and the Abyssinians, as it had been contested before that by local Somali sultanates and the Abyssinians. And uh, another smaller area with an ethnic Somali population was uh, carved off by Britain and given to its colony in Kenya. So Somalia was basically being carved up and reduced. This period saw a Sufi-led anti-colonial insurgency, the so-called Dervish War, led by Sayyid Muhammad Abdullah Hassan of the Salehiya Tariqa, or Sufi order, who fought against the British, the Italians, and the Abyssinians alike, and really represented the first stirrings of Somali nationalism, or a proto-Somali nationalism. Another significant step toward the emergence of a Somali national identity was the development of the Osmania script, named after its developer, the Somali scholar Osman Yusuf Kenadid, for writing down the Somali language, which is a Cushitic tongue related to Oromo, which is the language of plurality in Ethiopia. That was in the 1920s. In World War II, the British joined with the Abyssinians and local Somali insurgents to drive out the Italians. The Italians were, of course, on the losing side, so uh, after the war, both um, British and Italian Somaliland were um, occupied by Britain, and the Ogaden was given to Ethiopia. But then, very interestingly, in, um, in 1948, when formal trusteeships were established for Somalia by the United Nations, and the old colonial borders were essentially reestablished, the former British Somaliland became a British trust territory, and the former Italian Somaliland was given back to Italy and became an Italian trust territory. The nascent governments, which had been established in both these territories, agreed to unite upon independence in 1960, and the contemporary state of Somalia was established, although today it's really a state only in name. But uh, from 1960, it became a state in reality, which was basically um, Western-aligned in the Cold War, until we come to the coup d'etat of 1969 that brought Siad Barre to power, who um, declared a dictatorship in the name of socialism and uh, began to move toward the Soviet camp. 
Now, here's where, uh, you know, the old rivalry with Ethiopia becomes critical. In 1974, there was a revolution in Ethiopia, and a dictatorship established there as well in the name of socialism. And then, for a while, both Somalia and Ethiopia were in the Soviet camp. Under extremely ugly authoritarian regimes, I will add, until the Ogaden War of 1977, which turned out to be a real turning point, Siad Bari invaded Ethiopian territory to try to annex the Ogaden, and Moscow backed Ethiopia in no uncertain terms, and Cuban troops were sent in to back up Ethiopia, and Somalia was driven back. And this was the beginning of the switcheroo, where from uh, 1969 to 1974, Somalia had been in the Soviet camp, and Ethiopia had been in the Western camp. And then from really beginning in 1977, Somalia started moving back to the Western camp, and Ethiopia was in the Soviet camp. And uh, this was cemented in uh, 1982 with the Ethiopian-Somali border war that broke out that year, a shorter and less bloody affair than the 1977 Ogaden War. But it was at that point that um, the U.S. really began backing the Siad Bari dictatorship with military aid, which continued to be the case until 1991, when the regimes in both Ethiopia and Somalia collapsed. And at that time, Ethiopia started moving back once again to the U.S. camp under the new regime, while central authority basically collapsed in Somalia. Even as the U.S. sent in military troops, which played no productive role in a very confused internal war. Now, it was at this time that the entity today known as Somaliland, the former British Somaliland, declared its independence from Somalia and established a de facto independent state with its capital at Hargeisa. And in between the two, in between independent Somaliland and uh, rump Somalia, if you will, there was another de facto independent entity which emerged called Puntland, which is right at the very tip of the Horn of Africa, where the Gulf of Aden meets the Indian Ocean. And both Somaliland and Puntland continue to be de facto independent entities today. Somaliland has formally declared its independence from Somalia and is seeking international recognition. Puntland has not. Somaliland with its capital at Hargeisa and Puntland with its capital at Garo. Uh, Puntland has not formally declared independence and is in theory open to, uh, you know, autonomous rule within Somalia, but it's a de facto independent entity. And unfortunately, uh, Somaliland and Puntland don't really get along with each other. There's been some fighting between them over the border, but generally things have been pretty stable and pretty secular and democratic, comparatively speaking, in um, Somaliland and Puntland. Whereas in a Somalia proper, so to speak, that southern third of the country, 
There was essentially no effective government, and there still isn't today, by the way, but particularly in the 1990s and the first half of the 2000s, it was just under the control of mutually hostile warlords, some backed by the United States, which was sort of trying to play the warlords off against each other, and the U.S. would remain intermittently militarily involved in the conflict on the side of one warlord or another. Again, playing no constructive role. And this continued to be the case until June 2006, when the Islamic Courts Union came to power in Mogadishu. An extremist, ultra-reactionary, fundamentalist entity, like the Taliban in Afghanistan 10 years earlier, they offered a populace fed up with feuding warlords Stability, but at the terrible price of harsh Sharia rule, strictures on freedom for women, and particularly a crackdown on indigenous Somali culture and Sufism and practices such as zikr, the traditional um, use of song and dance to achieve a state of spiritual ecstasy by the Sufi orders, were banned. And there were terrible reprisals and repression against the large elements of civil society that did not go along with the Islamic Courts Union draconian program. The ICU were driven from power in December of that year, 2006, by um, an African Union intervention force, chiefly led by Ethiopia and Kenya, both at that time being backed by the United States. And this is when the attempt began to impose a government in that southern third of the country, where nobody had really been in control since 1991. And the truth is that nobody's in control there today either. <laughs> government In government-controlled Somalia, so-called, nobody's in control. And I'm not going to, you know, detail all of the... Uh, Intricacies of political paralysis, long delayed elections are actually planned for this month, May 2022, but they still aren't, after all these years, popular elections because the government has no effective control outside Mogadishu. So the, uh, the new president is to be elected by the parliament, which itself doesn't really govern outside Mogadishu. So it's not very much of a democracy. Meanwhile, Remnant factions of the Islamic Courts Union have continued to wage an insurgency under the informal name of the Shabab, which basically means youth in Arabic. Some of the factions are now aligned with ISIS. Some of the factions are now aligned with Al-Qaeda. There doesn't seem to be much in the way of central command, but the um, Shabab militias have gained control of much of so-called government-controlled Somalia, that southern third of the country. And the U.S.-backed intervention forces of Ethiopia and Kenya have been fighting them, and the U.S. has been carrying out drone strikes against them and airstrikes with warplanes. And it's been, you know, the basic uh, textbook example of the Jiwat versus Jihad dystopia. Jiwat, global war on terrorism... But meanwhile, in Somaliland, which you never hear anything about, 
in de facto independent Somaliland, the rudiments of democracy are in place, and there actually is a popular vote in regularly scheduled elections. And it's basically the same pro-independence party, which has been ruling all of these years, but at least the president changes regularly. And there are opposition parties which are tolerated. And there have been significant signs of social progress there. For instance, in January 2018, the parliament of the Independent Republic of Somaliland actually voted to instate criminal penalties for rape. And in government-controlled Somalia, there is still no law against rape. And a victim's family will often force her to marry her rapist to avoid being shamed, quote-unquote. So the stable, secular, and unrecognized government of Somaliland is significantly outpacing in social progress the unstable, reactionary, and basically fictional official government of Somalia. A bizarre situation. Okay, I should also note that um, Kenya has been encouraging a local autonomy movement in its occupation zone along the Kenyan border, an area called Jubaland, which is increasingly another quasi-independent entity, albeit under Kenyan military occupation, which has been carved out of Somalia. And all of a sudden, Russia is becoming a force to be reckoned with in the region once again for the first time since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, very interestingly, recently Russia has been putting its support behind a um, tentative dialogue process between Mogadishu and Somaliland. Now, the two sides are unalterably opposed on the question of sovereignty for Somaliland, but even calling for a dialogue is loaning some legitimacy to Somaliland as a self-governing entity. So uh, Russia is sort of doing the right thing here, but as we might imagine, for its own cynical imperial interests apparently in an attempt to establish a beachhead, so to speak, in Somaliland. Now, it was recently announced that Russia is in talks with Sudan to establish a naval base at Port Sudan, just up the, uh, the Red Sea coast from the, uh, the region which we're focusing on tonight. This would be Russia's first military base in Africa and only its second naval base outside of the former Soviet Union, after Tardis in Syria. And after it was revealed that Russia was in talks to establish this base at Port Sudan, anonymous Pentagon officials began claiming to the media that Russia was seeking to build a military base in Somaliland's port of Berbera and was similarly in talks with the Somaliland government to establish a naval base there. Now, I don't know if this is true or not. Neither Moscow nor Somaliland has confirmed it, and I believe the Russians have actually denied it. But um, if it is true, it's ominous. More about that later. I should just point out that this is an extremely strategic piece of real estate 
guarding the southern mouth of the Red Sea and a potential choke point for global trade, and the Djibouti, just up the coast from Somaliland, hosts numerous foreign military bases, including French and U.S., and most recently, Chinese. The first Chinese military base on the African continent was recently established in Djibouti. So there's a certain sense of uh, Russia not wanting to be left behind in establishing a military presence in a very geostrategic part of the world. In more positive news, in so-called government-controlled Somalia, which, as we've noted, is not really controlled by the government, the um, Sufis are back as a force to be reckoned with. A group called Alu Suna Wal Jama, A-S-W-J, is a Sufi sect which um, took up arms against the Shabab in the countryside of that southern third of Somalia back in 2008, and um, two years later forged a pact with the barely extant government in Mogadishu. But now that the Mogadishu government is really making an effort to at least establish the appearance of authority, it is uh, denying a bid by the ASWJ for um, some kind of a regional power-sharing deal in their territory, and demanding that the militia be integrated into the national armed forces. And this has sparked a complete break between the Mogadishu government and the ASWJ, which is now fighting both. It's now actually fighting both the Shabab and the Mogadishu government. And uh, taking stock of all of this, I'm going to draw a little analogy to Mali, across Fasahel in West Africa. You may recall that um, after a period of instability in the capital, Bamako, in July of 2012, jihadis seized power in the expansive north of the country and unleashed a reign of terror, began destroying and desecrating Sufi shrines, instated a harsh crackdown on music, and the regional capital of Mali's north, Timbuktu, was a real center of the African music scene, and the whole scene there was completely suppressed while these various jihadi factions were in power, and generally instated a crackdown on the region's indigenous culture, particularly that of the Tuareg people. In January of 2013, there was a foreign intervention led by France, and the jihadis were driven from power. And they are continuing today to wage a really brutal insurgency. And not just against government troops and their French backers, but against the civil population generally, terrorizing the civil population generally, including with horrific massacres. But there's also the armed autonomy movement of the Tuareg people, the MNLA the National Movement for the Liberation of Azawad, which is what the Tuaregs call that northern half of Mali, the desert north of the country, their homeland. And the MNLA is, again, secularist and rooted in the region's indigenous culture and constituting a sort of third force between the regime and its imperial backers on one hand and the jihadis on the other. And the most... uh, 
recent disturbing developments is that after um, last year's coup d'etat, with a military junta again coming to power in Mali, the French are pulling out to be replaced by Russian mercenaries from the Wagner Group. Now, the French were definitely implicated in atrocities in Mali, mostly through so-called collateral damage from their airstrikes. But human rights abuses have just leapt exponentially since the French were replaced by the Russians, with Wagner Group mercenaries being directly implicated in the massacre of hundreds of unarmed captives and civilians. So, uh, you know, let this serve as a warning. If uh, Mali provides any example, Russia expanding its influence in Somalia and the Horn of Africa is to be opposed. And I'm sorry if that's the position of the Pentagon and the State Department. But if you just flip the official Washington position on its head in knee-jerk manner, you are also letting the imperial overlords do your thinking for you just in a negative and reactionary sense, which really isn't any better. Now, obviously, I also want Kenya and Ethiopia out of Somalia, and I want the U.S. out of Somalia. Now, U.S. troops were actually removed under Trump, removed from Somalia, but it was uh, really a kind of pseudo-withdrawal where they were just repositioned elsewhere in the Horn of Africa so they can be sent right back in if need be. And certainly the drone strikes have continued. In fact, under the Trump administration, the U.S. carried out more airstrikes, either by drone or warplane, in Somalia than had taken place under either the W. Bush or Barack Obama administrations combined. And unfortunately, the drone strikes, as we note, are continuing under Biden. So, who can we support and what can we demand in Somalia? We meaning progressive forces in the West. Well, first of all, international recognition for independent Somaliland. Both for fundamental political reasons, because they are the most progressive and enlightened government in the region, as well as for the more narrow tactical reasons of um, undermining Russia's attempt to establish a beachhead there. Because the more friends Somaliland has internationally, the less likely they will be to take Moscow's bait and wind up in Russia's or anyone else's sphere of influence. And secondly, we can support the Sufis, at least by providing a voice and visibility and what solidarity we can for Alusuna Waljuma and their autonomous zone, and their independent struggle against the Shabab. And finally, there are the uh, civil society, secularist, pro-democracy, and feminist groups within Mogadishu, which do exist. I'm just going to mention the Elmin Peace Center, a human rights and educational group founded just before everything collapsed in 1991, and still surviving today, whose leader, Almas Elman, was assassinated in November 2019, presumably, although not necessarily, by the Shabab. And uh, in recent years, the Elman Peace Center, which has continued its work without its leader, has documented rights abuses in Somalia by government troops, Ethiopian and Kenyan occupation forces, 
the Shabab insurgents, and rival clan militias. And the more awareness there is about groups such as the Elman Peace Center here in the West, and the more international visibility they have, the more their many enemies will be restrained from attempting to target or exterminate them. Now, with the drought in Somalia and the country facing all too likely famine and possibly starvation in the immediate future, Somalia is certainly going to be facing very challenging situations in the months to come and demands our attention. And it is incumbent upon us as progressives in the West to view the people on the ground as human beings, first and foremost, and not merely as pawns in the great game. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where everything I've been discussing tonight is hyperlinked and documented. Support us on Patreon. We very badly need your support in order to keep going with offerings of this nature. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Again, basic membership is uh, $1 per weekly podcast. But sign up for $2 per weekly podcast, and you get to choose a topic for us to discuss on the Counter Vortex podcast. This has been the Counter Vortex. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.